Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love you to open it now to Psalm 32. The superscription here says, A Maskell of David. The word maskell means a teaching poem. It is, in that sense, a wisdom psalm, kind of like Psalm 1. And it even sounds a bit like Psalm 1 at parts, particularly in the opening verses. It is also generally categorized as one of the seven penitential psalms. Those include Psalms 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. The topic of this psalm has to do with the wonder and blessing of forgiveness. Ernst Wilhelm Hengstenberg says here, Most commentators suppose that David composed this psalm when he obtained forgiveness from God after his adultery with Bathsheba and the death of Uriah, to which that sin led. The correctness of this view can scarcely be called into question. Closed quote. I would tend to agree with that. David was traumatized by his sin. The guilt and the shame of it pressed him hard, as well it should have. After being confronted by Nathan the prophet, David came to understand the awful gravity of what he had done. He had raped Bathsheba. Now, I know that some people choke on that, but I'm not sure how else you could categorize his actions. We would certainly call it that today. If a king sends armed guards into the house of one of his subjects to bring her into his bed, that is statutory rape. That is abuse of power, whatever you want to call it. And listen, David called it every name in the book. Go and read Psalm 51. In the first five verses of that psalm, David uses almost every word in the Hebrew language for sin to describe and decry his own actions. David is not trying to avoid the gravity of what he had done. He was overwhelmed by it. It was traumatizing. He raped a young woman. He murdered a friend. He betrayed his army. And he imperiled his nation. And all of that, as David rightly understood, was subsumed under the enormity of his having blasphemed God. David was the Lord's anointed. In a special way, he represented the glory and the majesty of God upon the earth. Therefore, to do what he did was absolutely unforgivable. And yet it wasn't. As impossible as it is to believe, David was forgiven. And when he was, when, when that forgiveness had settled on him and restored him, David wrote this psalm. It is a celebration and a commendation of forgiveness. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The word blessed is probably the best we can do in terms of rendering this concept into English. Some of the newer translations experiment with the word happy here, but that just doesn't sound quite right to me. It, it, it works better in Psalm 1, 
when you look this Hebrew word up in the dictionary, it literally says happy, comma, blessed. So maybe we just need to redefine what we mean when we use the English word happy. According to Psalm 1, and I'll cite it from one of those newer translations, the CSB, for example, uses the word happy here, and it helps get us there, and it helps import the concept back into Psalm 32. Let me read it. Psalm 1 in the CSB says, How happy is the one who does not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers? Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers, close quote. So happy in a Psalm 1 kind of way is about walking in the way of God. It's about having access to the nourishment and provision of God. It's about being fruitful, stable, wise, and prosperous. That's happy as defined by the Bible. And if that's what you mean, then that word probably does work here in Psalm 32. I actually really like the CSB translation again uh, for these first two verses in Psalm 32. They have it this way. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So I think that's very helpful. Now, it's the same Hebrew word here as in Psalm 1, so I don't know how they decide when to use happy and when to use joyful, but by going back and forth like that, it does kind of feel deeper and more substantial than what we typically mean in English when we use the word happy. Bottom line here is that there is no person more joyful or more blessed or more happy than the person whose sins have been forgiven. Tim Keller says that in his little devotional on Psalm 32 in the Songs of Jesus. He says, The happiest people in the world are those who not only know they need to be forgiven, but also have experienced it. Closed quote. I think that's true. I know that's true. Now, as for the specifics, there are several words used here that help to broaden out our understanding and appreciation of this miraculous grace. David says first, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. The Hebrew word used there means literally to be lifted up and borne away. W.S. Plumer says here, The language must have been well understood by a pious Jew who annually saw the service of the scapegoat solemnly performed, one goat being slain and the other led away to a land uninhabited. Closed quote. He's referring, of course, to the Day of Atonement as described in Leviticus 16. No doubt that annual ritual served as a defining illustration in the minds of Old Testament Jews. The sins were put on or transferred to the head of the goat by the confession of the high priest, and then the goat was literally driven out into the wilderness, taking the sin away, taking that magnet for the wrath and judgment of the Lord far away from the covenant community. In fact, in later Judaism, they would have a young man go with the goat and drive it over a cliff to its death just to make sure that the goat didn't wander back into town a few hours later and spoil the symbolism. The whole point was that the sin was gone by means of the miracle of substitution. Blessed is that man. Happy is that woman. Oh, how joyful is the person whose sins have been transferred and taken away.
That's the idea here. Second part of verse 1 is a bit more confusing. David says, Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Now, covered in English sometimes has the sense of, you know, covered up. That's a negative connotation. But that's not the sense that it has here. W.S. Plumer actually refers to this as effectual hiding. I like that. But actually, like how St. Augustine describes this even better, he talks of it in terms of the application of a healing poultice. He uses the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector told by Jesus in Luke 18 to illustrate the teaching. Speaking of the Pharisee in that story, he says, He was like someone in need of healing who had come to a doctor's surgery, but presented only his sound limbs and covered up his wounds. Let God cover your wounds. Don't cover them yourself. If you cover them up out of embarrassment, the doctor will not heal them. Allow the physician to cover and cure them, because he covered them with a dressing. Under the physician's dressing, the wound heals. Under the patient's covering, it is merely hidden, closed quote. That's good. I, I think that gets us a lot closer to what David is saying here. It is effectual covering. It is covering that affects healing. That's the idea here. Blessed is the man whose sins are taken away and whose soul wounds are exposed to the light and then covered with a healing and restoring poultice. Thanks be to God. In the second verse, David uses some terminology that is picked up and expanded upon by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. David says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. The Apostle Paul incorporates this phrase into his teaching on justification by faith in Romans chapter 4. In Romans 4, 3-8, Paul says, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Close quote. This is the doctrine theologians refer to as imputation. That's one of those fancy words that thankfully sounds like what it is. Imputation means to input. It means to enter into the records. Paul is saying in Romans 4 that God enters into our record that we are righteous or just before him on the basis of our faith. Paul actually talks about two types of imputation in Romans 4. He says that God puts in our record that we are righteous on the basis of faith, and he doesn't put into our records any sins we have committed if we have confessed those, if those are covered by the blood of Christ. So if we have put our faith in Jesus, the sins are taken out of our record book and his righteousness is put in. Theologians refer to that as double imputation. Blessed is the man or blessed is the woman who has these sorts of entries in their record book. These sorts of entries will be the difference between life and death on judgment day, according to Revelation 20 verse 12. There the Apostle John says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. 
Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done, closed quote. So, blessed is the one whose sins are not recorded in that book. Blessed is the one who has the righteousness of Jesus recorded in that book. Such a person will be welcomed, celebrated, and rewarded on the day of judgment. Thanks be to God. Now, the last part of verse 2 is also very important. David says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. William Van Gemmeren says here, The voice of wisdom is heard in the last colon, where the blessedness of forgiveness is contingent on integrity. Close quote. You see, there's no such thing as play in God. Right? There's, there's no such thing as, you know, I'll sin and do what I want, and then I'll ask God for mercy just before I die, and he'll be obliged to give it to me. Uh, nope, that's not a thing. Only the one whose heart is truly broken over sin and who is truly desperate for mercy will receive it. David talked about that all the time. In the psalm that comes just before this one, in the narrative of David's great spiritual disaster, Psalm 51, David says there in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. So God looks at your heart. The sacrifice that pleases him is the sacrifice of a broken heart. A person going to God like that will receive all of these mercies, the, 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 the blessings of mercy and the, and the forgiveness that's being celebrated here. That is the person, the person in whose spirit there is no deceit, the person who's not trying to play God or con God. That's the person whose sins will be removed, whose wounds will be healed, and whose accounts will be adjusted. Praise the Lord. All right, now we've spent an awful lot of our time on the first two verses of this psalm, but that's okay. This is the spiritual and theological meat of David's presentation. The rest is backstory and application. So let's get into that now. In verse 3, David says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now, of course, if you go back and read the story, it was several months before David actually confessed his sin. The child resulting from the adulterous affair had already been born by the time that the prophet Nathan arrived. So David had been hiding this and sitting on this for the better part of a year. And according to verse 3, it had been eating him up. Day and night, he felt God's hand pressing upon him. Do you know that feeling? That feeling in the pit of your stomach, like you swallowed a bowling ball, that constant sick fear hiding at the periphery of your mind, ready to pounce and overwhelm you at any second. Do you know that feeling? David knew it. He languished under that weight for month after debilitating month. Until finally, in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. As I've said before, David was an awful sinner, but he was a great repenter. When he was confronted, after months and months of that guilt eating away at the strength of his bones, David broke and he put it all on the table in a flood. He said, I have sinned against the Lord, 2 Samuel 12, 13. And Nathan said to David, 
The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. 2 Samuel 12, 13-14. Now hearing that adds a certain dimension to our understanding of this psalm. David is rejoicing in his forgiveness, despite the fact that it did not remove from him all the consequences and entailments associated with his sin. And I think that tells you something about David's heart. You see, sometimes people will weep and wail when they get caught in their sin, but but their focus actually is on the consequences associated with having been caught. David experienced the consequences associated with his sin, and still here he is rejoicing before the Lord over the forgiveness. Do you see that? It was never about escaping consequences for David. It was about experiencing forgiveness. He knew his soul had been spared, and and he knew his child would go to be with the Lord. And in these realities, he was content. Verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Verse 6 is notoriously hard to translate. Commentators go back and forth as to which option is to be preferred. The basic sense seems fairly obvious. David is saying that there is a window during which you can approach God and receive mercy. The wise person sees that and steps through that window and gets a hearing with God before it closes. The longer you wait, the harder your heart, the more seared your conscience, and the less obvious your integrity before God. So go. If you have business to conduct with God, go now. Today is the day of salvation. Now, as we turn to verses 8 and 9, there's also a little bit of disagreement here among scholars and commentators. Some understand these verses as representing God's reply to David. So the I in verse 8 is God, and the U is David. But others, and I think actually the majority of commentators, think that the speaker here is David. David is saying, I've learned this lesson, and now I'm sharing it with you, the hearer. And I think that makes more sense, and it aligns better with the twin of this psalm, which is Psalm 51, as we've mentioned before. I think it's fair to assume that David wrote Psalm 51 shortly after his open confession, when the wounds were still very raw and the reality of God's forgiveness was just beginning to settle on him. In that Psalm, he looks forward and he says, I will teach about this. So in Psalm 51, verse 13, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So David always intended to share what he was learning through this horrific experience. And it would seem then that here in verses 8 to 9, if we assume that, that Psalm 32 was written several months later after the forgiveness had settled on him, after he had been uh, restored and transformed by the mercy and grace of God, he's writing Psalm 32. And so here in verses 8 to 9, he's doing what he said he intended to do back in Psalm 51, 13. Listen, verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. So this is where the psalm slides into the wisdom category. David says, based on my experience, 
My advice to you, friend, is to walk closely and gladly beside the Lord. Don't become stubborn. Don't trust yourself. Don't allow yourself to become too big for your britches. That was my mistake, David said. And if you do that, God will put pressure on you like he did on me. God will curb you if necessary. He'll even give you a sharp kick to put you back on the path of salvation. I know about this, friends. Take it from me. Those kicks can wound. They'll save you, but they'll hurt you too. Tim Keller says here, Sometimes God allows a difficult season of mighty waters to be a kind of bit and bridle that pulls us back to him and shows us we need his friendship and love above all else. Closed quote. Amen. Amen. That's true. And David is saying, hey, listen, how much better would it be for you if you learned that by observing my experiences than having to go through that for yourself? There's nothing good for you out there. Trust me. There's nothing good for you out there across the ditch. So stay on the path. <laughs> Walk close with the master. Verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. And rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So David is happy to be home. He knows he's been rescued. He left the path. He, he went across the, the, the boundaries, the rumble strips. He found his way into the ditch. He was out in the desert and near death's door. He was a fool. And he could have and, and should have been lost. But God brought him home. It was not an easy rescue. David had almost been overcome. He'd almost been irretrievably changed. So it was a rough recapture. There was pain. There was detox. There was agony and adjustment. But in the end, there was repentance, relief, and restoration. On the other side of all that, David has become a teacher, a wisdom teacher, as well he should. Matthew Henry says, penitence should be preachers. <laughs> exactly that. Penitence do tend to make the best preachers. Once you've been out there, you know how good it is to come home. Once you've been out there, you know there's nothing out there for you. There's nothing. It was all a lie. It was all a mirage. Everything good was at home. That's where the things are that you want to talk about, sing about, celebrate, and enjoy. W.S. Plumer says here, the sinner who has fled to Jesus finds all he needs. Grace, friends, a home, eternal oblivion of his past crimes and assurance of everlasting victory over all his foes. Oh, how amazing is the gospel plan. I'll second that. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the End of the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped, I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for Into the Word 
by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the Fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.